0: Yeah, so we we got a guest speaker tonight that I'm really excited about. Um, so, wow, you're getting woos already, man. It's just a good-looking dude already getting woos. Um, yeah, so I in a second I want to introduce you to, to Rob Wassenaar. So one of our original connections that we had with, with Rob was uh, both of his sons actually go to school at Iowa State, and one of his sons was in one of my small groups that I had there for two years. And I got to know him, and then – met Rob through that. And so Rob, I'll, I'll kind of let him tell the story, but um, yeah, Rob said he was, he's been in on Salt City Church kind of even before the thing launched and has been a big part of that. And, and so he's kind of helped us get this church started since we've, we've come up here. And then, and then one thing you, you might, might know or might not know about Salt Company and about Salt City Church is that, yeah, Salt Company's a college ministry of Salt City Church. And then Salt City Church is an elder-led church, which is a group of people that help uh, sort of oversee the decision-making and the vision of the church, but then primarily kind of help shepherd and love the people that are inside of the church. And that includes Salt Company. And so Rob is one of the elders of Salt City Church, and I wanted him to, to come and talk with you guys tonight. So yeah, give it up for Rob.
1: Thanks, Jordan. Don't want to step on the wrong stuff here. It is a blast um, to be a part of this church. And I want you to know, just like Jordan said, we, we're, we're bigger than we are here. And we're, we're a part of a church together. So you heard earlier about the baptism night. Not a better way to get connected to the church the the old folks so to speak right the multi generational so God God creates the church not made up of one age group it it's not supposed to be old people alone it it, it can't be young people alone it's got to be this family for a lot of reasons one is it just doesn't function very well one it doesn't give a a great picture of really God's plan and it's not a great witness to the world of what the church is supposed to be a lot of other reasons so Kathy and I um, have been a part of this church even before there was an uh, an announcement that it was coming up. And I can get into that a little bit later, but I'm just here to tell you that I am a blessed man. I've been saved by Jesus Christ. I'm a new person. Um, I'm new every day, and I'm forgiven every day because I need it. So let's jump into Romans. Since January, you guys have been listening to Jordan and and, uh, Isaac and, and others Talking about Romans one through eleven, and I know there was one time I even heard Jordan on say, "Hey, stop the application. Let's stop forgetting. Let's forget about application. Let's learn doctrine right now, because that's what Romans is. One through eleven is tons of doctrine. And and Paul did it that way on purpose because all application, all life change, has to be fueled by truth from God, not by the world, but by God. And so, last week I assume was the last time you were in." Romans in chapter 11, well, that ended the, the section of Romans that's more pure doctrine, and now we get to jump into application. Now, I think there's probably a couple of little challenges for you. Many of you haven't been here every week, so you haven't studied every chapter, you haven't picked up everything, that's okay. Um, next time, next week, you'll have it memorized, so we'll be good to go. Uh, another thing is that you might have forgotten something, you're human, that's okay too. Um, but I, I'm going to tell you that the, the greatest challenge you're going to have today and the easiest thing about chapter 12 through 15, and I'm going to say it backwards here, the easiest thing is that sometimes we ask the question, how do I apply this to my life? Paul tells us. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Do this, don't do that, here it is, submit here, do that. The easy part is knowing what the application is that God wants us. The hard part is, do we want to do it? I'm 52 years old. I struggle with that too. So we're going to talk about the battle of our will, but really where God wants us to be so that we can provide the world a great picture of how great our God is. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are good. And your mercies are new every morning. Help us to see them. And in light of those mercies, in light of your character and your love and your work and your grace and mercy in our lives, may we offer up our lives back to you. Show us what that means today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We just sang a song, Oh, Come to the Altar. I don't know what comes up in your mind. In, in my mind, it, it kind of, uh, I've been to Israel, I've, I was at the temple. One time it was pretty cool and there's this big, huge, square piece of rock created and that's where they burnt the offerings that the Old Testament sacrifice were there. And so I think of that song, it sometimes reminds me of, okay, oh, come to the altar. So I'm, going to, I'm supposed to go to that altar or I'm supposed to go to the inner sanctum of the temple. Unfortunately, we can't talk about all the nuances of that, but I, in my mind, that's what I'm thinking. But I also want to let you know that there's a better way to think, and, and Paul gives us a, a good outline of what to do and how to, how to process what it means to come to the altar, and we'll work through that in a couple minutes. If you have your Bible, we're going to be at Romans 12 through 15, 15 verse 13, so we're going to breeze through, we're not going to read every portion of it, uh, I'd like you to maybe take that upon yourselves in the next seven days to kind of read through it and actually test what I say. In fact, I I want you to challenge yourself. Challenge me in that as you study your word on your own, am I saying what is right? Okay? I I think you should do that with every pastor, by the way. We're going to read a handful of verses scattered throughout those three and a half chapters. It's actually four and a half. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable, God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you, by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul is saying, hey, Listen. I urge you, I need you to think about this stuff. And I need you to, first of all, focus on God's mercies. What does that mean? What comes to mind when you hear the phrase, the mercies of God? Well, chapters 1 through 11 gives a whole host of them. I'm not going to be able to list them all. I put a couple of them on the board for you. I'm going to read through a couple of them here. First and foremost, he brings salvation. That comes from... Chapter 1, verse 16, he he has kindness that leads us to repentance in chapter 2. He justifies us, and through his forbearance and patience, he passes over our sin. There's a whole list that continues on through verse 11. Now, I'm not sure if if the second part of my slide, the the comparison of what we think, I want to pause on that for a second. Let's go through a little bit more. I'll finish that list. And I want to ask you to compare in your mind how that is different from what the world tells us. Okay? He has made peace with us. He died for us. He set us free from our sins so that we become slaves to righteousness. He has not released us. He has released us from the law, but He hasn't condemned us. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's made us heirs with His Son. Think about that. Think about that. We are actually heirs to the throne of the Most High because of the work of Jesus. I tell you, the more you think about these mercies of God, the more it will transform your mind. And the more it'll, you'll be able to walk through this life kind of in victory. Let me ask you a question today. Most of you went to class today, I assume. What portion of your day was focused on the Word of God and His mercies? And what percentage of your day was focused on the world? Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying suspend your mind. Don't learn about biology, econ, physical therapy, whatever it is. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, are you distracted by your desires and wants? and your feelings toward that person or your anger against that person or your frustration with your parents or your stress over money. That's a real part of life. How do you battle it? You battle it by trying to train your mind to think about the mercies of God. All right, so I have a little comparison sheet. Hopefully it came up in the... uh, Sometimes I know PowerPoint or whatever it works doesn't doesn't really... um, show the, the way I had it envisioned in my mind the first one I mentioned to you His mercies he, he brings salvation what does the world say? the world says you have to earn it for yourself how many of you have struggled in your life saying I, I got to do better uh, I, I have to earn God's love boy Jesus just can't forgive me for that I'm, I'm not good enough I still have to run the, the rat race Okay, that's a battle we have in our mind. He is kind so we can repent. The world's going to say a lot of things. One of us is going to say, you didn't do anything wrong. Why repent? You're not a sinful person. Who gives a rip? That's a lie. And and it's a false idea that people get sucked into all the time. Number three, God justifies us. The world says, you suck you're dirty you're, you're, you're less than anything you, he can't make you right he's not that good he's not, he doesn't care about you you're dirt to him even if he exists maybe he doesn't exist number four scripture says and in, in, in Romans says that he's passed over our sin he doesn't count them against us anymore the world says you're dirty and Satan's going to say you know what remember your sin how can, how can a good God love you when you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. By the way, raise your hand in your head. You don't have to do it physically. How many of you have a besetting sin you're battling right now? Something you battle with. You know what? If you had one sin to go to, that's the one thing you do, whether it's gossip or lust, anger, frustration, stress, whatever it is. Hopefully, as you consider these things, as you consider the mercies of God, you will be training yourself to not battle that as much next week as you are this week. The next one, we have peace with God. The world says, God, if, if he exists, he doesn't even care. And if he does care, he, maybe the, you know, one version of religion out there says he still is going to be wrathful. He's just going to be wrathful if he wants to. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do or believe or think. He just might have a bad day. He might wake up on the wrong side of the bed and still be angry with you. That's what the world says. Last one on my list is Christ died for you. Paid the penalty for your sin. The world says, (laughs) Jesus died maybe. Maybe he didn't even exist, but if he died, it wasn't efficacious for you. It didn't have anything to do with you. It was just humanly his death and his death alone. We could go on for the rest of the Romans and talk about these mercies of God, but that's what Paul is saying here. In this application section, Romans 12 through 15, he's saying. By the mercies of God, think this way, do this. In light of God's mercy, let's go there. Second part of that verse, or verses, that's how you're transformed, that's how you renew your mind. Now, in light of that, he comes up with this idea, it's kind of radical, about a kind of a, maybe a definition and a proper way of worship. I was standing in the back, singing. We are worshiping together as, as a body. Fills me up. But I don't want you to, to believe that that's all worship is. It's awesome because we serve an awesome God. It's a wonderful time. It's fantastic and it's needed. I need it. You need it. We need it together. But that's not all worship is. And then Paul throws out this crazy, crazy thing. Back in verse 1 again, I read it already. But He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What is a living sacrifice? Well, in light of God's mercy, Paul is saying that true worship involves living sacrifice. How is that different from a dead sacrifice? All right, let's step back. Old Testament. Every year at least, families are supposed to bring a bull or a ram, the best, choicest animal they have. Bring it to the priest, and the priest was to slaughter it. Drip the blood on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. First for his sins, then, then for the family, and then for the nation of Israel, for God's people. But you know what the kicker is? It never completed the job. It never took care of the real issue. The real issue being our sin. So while we were read, while we read that the Israelites are supposed to do this annually and regularly, we get the benefit of seeing, hindsight is 20-20. We say the Old Testament sacrificial system was only to point toward the fact that we can't offer up our own sacrifice. That's where Jesus is. By the way, Jesus was the first living sacrifice. You ever thought about this? On Calvary, he's put on a cross. There's a guy to his right and a guy to his left. And the Pharisees are screaming at him like, yeah, he can't even get himself off the cross. In my mind, I'm thinking, he could have just walked right off and walked right past him, brought down judgment on the whole place. Just zap, right? It's probably what I would have done. No, he stayed up there willingly to pay the penalty for you and me. He was the first living sacrifice. It cost him his life, though. Okay. All right. Difference between a living and a dead sacrifice. The dead sacrifice was done by somebody else. A living sacrifice is done by the one individual living person. It can only be done by one who is made alive by Christ already. Let me let me remind you, in a very very simple way, and I'm not trying to be mean or callous or anything because it has nothing to do with me. But there are two types of people in the world: those that are dead spiritually, and those that are alive. Only those that are alive, those who are alive in Christ, have the opportunity. An ability to, to offer their lives as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is active. It's ongoing. It's voluntary. It's, it's not on Thursday nights only. It's not on Sunday mornings. It's when we wake up. It's as we're eating dinner, brushing our teeth. It's as we walk. It's like, hey, this is a renewing of our mind as we do stuff of the world. Yes, even the mundane stuff of the world. Being a living sacrifice is holy and pleasing, Scripture says, to God. It honors Him. It brings Him glory. We're going to talk a little bit in detail what it means, though, in a second, okay? And then being a living sacrifice is actually a picture of the gospel. I said earlier, Jesus was the first. When we offer up our bodies, our minds, our souls, we're showing the world that we belong not to ourselves but to Jesus because of His work. So let me give you this. True worship is the proper response to God for who He is and all that He's done and all that He promises to do in this world and the next. It's a response that requires your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Have you heard those phrases before? It harkens back to me when Jesus was challenged by the legal experts of the day saying, what's, what's the greatest law? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we love God and as we love others sacrificially with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are then presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to the one true God. Can I be so bold as to ask you to raise your hand who's getting baptized this Sunday? Right on. Right on. You're going to proclaim that Jesus died and rose again, and that he brought you out of death to life. Coming to faith in Christ is an intensely personal thing. Nobody can do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. I can't do that for my kids. Nobody can do it for me. Now, a lot of people helped me. I can think of two specific people that really were instrumental in me coming to know Jesus. Jesus. But it was all me. Take that the wrong way. It wasn't all me. It was my decision to surrender, but it was based on what God has done for me. But once I was born again, I was 16 and a half years old in high school. I didn't know this perfectly then. But immediately I went from being my own guy to thrust into the family of God. It's an immediate thing. So let's go then to the next set of verses in Romans 12. Okay. 12 verses 3 through 6. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function, so we, and here's where the kicker is, so we, through many, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of Of one another. When you come to faith in Christ, you are saved, regenerated, born again, whatever the phrase you want to use, and immediately you are thrust into the family of God. In light of God's mercy, how are we to function as a family member then? How are we to live sacrificially? Well, again, answer in your brain here. My guess is that everybody's going to say yes to this question. Do you like and love the person you're sitting next to. And do you think it would be easy to be sacrificially joyful to spend time with them? Sure. Now, another question is are there people that you know are Christians that you don't want to sit next to? Don't don't nod, I don't want to see it. <laughs> you can nod in your mind. My guess is everybody's nodding. There are people that I know of in my past and. And I, and I think, oh, man, do I really have to be a part of that family? Is he Cousin Eddie? Or is he a distant, weird one? Or am I the weird guy? You get it, right? When we're thrust into the family, God is shaping us and making us. And we are called in light of God's mercy to want to love to be in that family. It's a bit invasive for our American individualistic culture, isn't it? but that's what Paul's all about. He's ready to kick some tires and push down some fences in your life. The next two and a half chapters, he goes through a handful of ways that we are to act as living sacrifices, changing our minds, submitting our mind to his, one of which is submitting to the political authorities above us. I don't know what your political persuasion is. I don't care. I belong to you, you belong to me, so we're family. You can have whatever political affiliation you want. Paul's not talking about what your individual deal is. It is, who are you loyal to? Now, you might think that he's saying you have to be loyal to your, to your political government over you. He's, no, he's saying submit to it because he is sovereign over it. He's the one that ordained government in our world you understand what I'm saying? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying <laughs> that political parties are, are the way to go and, and we, can, we can certainly have opinions there. But the whole idea is that we are to submit to the people above us in authority in a way so that it honors God as sovereign over them. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I don't know. This is kind of a random deal. Uh, for those folks in the world, and I'm one of them, that, that, that have a, you know, I've, I've gone through training and I can go shoot pistols at a, at a range, I own a gun. If our government outlaws guns at some point, what's the, what's the response of a Christian who's supposed to submit to the government? I need to lay down my gun. Now, we know that the, the, the whole of Scripture says, Unless, but puts the caveat: unless there's a direct law against God's moral law, like if a God, if a if a politician tells me I'm supposed to kill that other person, I have to reject that because that is an offense to God's moral law. But if but if there is a a, a neutral law, maybe I disagree with it. I'm still required to submit. I'm also required to pray for those in power over us, so that it may go well with them. But he doesn't stay there. And and that's kind of a, it's not superficial, but it's a a first start. He actually started to get more invasive by how we deal with human beings. Let's go to chapter 13, verse 8. I don't know if I put a slide up there for that, and I apologize. But it's right after this this submission section, and he sums it up. He goes, verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. The only debt we are to have toward any other human being is that I love them. You know, I find it interesting that the Scripture doesn't tell us that I have to like people. (laughs) I have to love them. Love them is deeper, more intrusive, and it's actually more Christ-like. I think Christ likes us too. I want to like people. But in light of God's mercy, can I love people that may be unlovable? Can I love people that are antagonistic to my faith? Can I love people that are antagonistic to Jesus Christ? Yeah. And we need to start with our body, with our with our family. Why? I think a good question we always have to ask is why. Why? Because... This fulfills the law. I find that really interesting. Let's read that again. I'll read the second part of verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Isn't it interesting to you that we could not fulfill the law on our own anyway? Isn't that the whole point of the Old Testament, that I can't fulfill the law, therefore I am sinful and I need a Savior? And now he's telling me I can fulfill the law through, through love? What's the difference? The difference is that Christ is in me. And I'm loving not to earn favor or brownie points or merit. I'm loving to honor Jesus. I'm loving in light of God's mercy. My motive is totally different. And when my motive, when my brain, when my mind is renewed, I now can do what God is calling me to do. Why else do we do that? Because we follow the lead of Jesus. That is who we are. We are followers of Jesus. And the more I love, the more I love people that love me, the more I love people that don't love me, I'm acting like Jesus. Why else? I think when I love somebody, I'm fighting my own sin nature. How many of you have sinned today? Okay, I raise my hand. You guys don't have to, because I know you did. But when I choose to love someone, I'm fighting that sin, sin nature, because the more I start doing that, the more I'm not succumbing to what my flesh says I should do. Paul continues, he says, hey, let's not pass judgment on one another in the body. How many of you know a young, young, really young Christian? Do they know everything about the faith? No. How many of you know old people that think they know everything about the faith and they keep making mistakes and you see them mess up? Do you ever have like this attitude like, well, I'm better than they are? I'm 52 years old. I struggle with that. I think sometimes because my life and, and experience... I think I've experienced a lot more things. i got to battle that. I'm not to look down on anybody. I'm a brother and sister to everybody. I'm not a superior to anyone. What does it mean to not pass judgment on someone or to cause another young one to stumble? What do you think it means? I think Paul's saying... Use your freedom in Christ to build people up, not to put them down. Use your freedom in Christ to gently encourage someone to learn more about who God is. When my boys were young, they had good motives, but they would fall. They'd wipe out. And I'd chuckle. I didn't get mad at them because they weren't ready to stand on their own at times. And then they got to that stage where their head was too heavy for their body, and they'd start leaning, and they started catching up with themselves, and inevitably something would fall and break. Sorry, Kaylee. That's your phone. No, I'll pick it up. It didn't break. You have nice... It's my timer. Um, i got to turn later. Software update. You want it now? Remind me later. Okay. All right. good. So when we insist on our rights whether they're right or wrong when we insist on our rights as, as Christians as followers of Jesus so that I get to tell people what to do I am I'm not acting like Jesus I'm acting arrogant I'm putting people down and if, effectively what I'm doing is I'm comparing them to me is that just the toilet flushing? Right emphasis. Was that, that was up there, Landon, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. All right, so it's good. So when we insist on our rights, how many of you have had that happen? You're just like, I, I am right, I know I'm right, and I'm going to fight and battle and argue until right comes to the forefront and everybody sees that I'm right. Jesus never did that. He didn't have to. And he's saying, hey, for the sake of unity in the body, for the sake of our family getting along. How many of you have seen, well, with siblings, you ever had that argument with your brother or sister? It's like, I need the front seat. It's my turn. I get the last chocolate chip cookie. I get to lick the spoon on the mix. It's my turn. My kids battled all the time with who gets shotguns. It was funny, but it's how we do things. Let's be a people that relinquishes our right in freedom so that others are built up. As we start thinking about maturity, this is, this is really a maturity in, in our faith idea, we start seeing the difference between a mature Christian and, a, and an immature Christian. Paul is calling us to be more mature by sacrificing. And we grow in our maturity when we look to others' needs First. And let me give you one quick idea. Growing in maturity is when you start discerning between essential and non-essential things. Even in theology, in some there are at least three levels of theological tr- thought, and some fit in one of the three categories. It's essential, or secondary, or tertiary. For those of us who are in Christ, for example... In order to be a Christian, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. You're sinful, and God is triune. Those are essential matters that we have to agree on. Secondary issues like baptism. Do we go under fully water or do you sprinkle? Those are debatable. But should we, and should we battle so much in an argument with another church that it causes division amongst Christians? No. The more mature we get in our faith, the more we see the differences between essential items and non essential. And my prayer for you is that you see more and more each day what really matters. So, in light of God's mercy, don't put others down. Don't cause, other, cause others to stumble and sin because you think you're right or you have to be right. Grace is a hard thing to remember. I remember going through a phase of life where I received God's grace all the time. But when I saw God's grace given to other people, I said, unfair. They need to be judged. Or they need to be disciplined. God, you need to love them lovingly discipline them. Why? Why? Because I like me better than other people. So in light of God's mercy, give grace. Give more grace than you've received. And then you'll be acting more like Jesus. One of the challenges of this passage is that we've got a big idea and a big section of it. So we're rapidly going through it and I I can see how it might be a little challenging but as we put stuff together, I hope that you can see the theme that Paul is working on. He keeps diving in more and more deeply into who we are as a human being and how we relate to other people. So let's go then to verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13 and 19 of Romans. I'll read this out for you. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on, on one another any longer, but rather decide to not put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual building That's where Paul lands. Serve. Put their needs in front of yours. In light of God's mercy, people that are living sacrifices put others' needs in front of yours. They seek not to please themselves. Then we get to chapter 15 and and we'll open up a little bit more. um, Read a little bit more of that because I think it's such a great exclamation point of where we want to be the example of Christ is the subtitle in the ESV but really what is happening is it's a culmination of all the previous three and a half chapters of how to be a living sacrifice in light of God's mercy we want to submit to authorities, we want to submit to each other we want to realize that we are part of a body that I'm obligated to you you're obligated to me, we're obligated to each other Hear the words, one through seven. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Is it easy for you to see the failings of other people? It is for me. I have a discerning eye. How arrogant of me when I say that's discernment, right? If I can point out the mistakes of others, can I see the mistakes in my own eyes? I think one of the greatest things about maturing in faith is that you look at the log in your own eye first, and then I'll be, then I'll be ready to help somebody else grow and, and work on their, work on their issue. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Are you about building up other people or building up yourself? Paul is saying, let's build up other people. And this is for the glory of God. So the strong theme is here. We were not our own. You don't own your life. Do you like that or not? That, That unnerves me sometimes. I like my life. I like running my life. Jesus is saying, through Paul, you belong to other people. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, all that he's done, may that prompt you to live it out in a different way and offer up yourself on that altar on a regular day. So now my vision of an altar is not a static block of stone in the middle of a temple. It travels with me. And it's not a stone, it's it's my life. And it's wherever I am. It's, It's in a chair. Or it's standing up. Or it's at a baseball game. Or it's at the dinner table. The altar doesn't stay anywhere. It goes with me and it's like, I want to climb up on that altar every day to transform what I'm thinking. God changed me. It's not on Thursday nights only. It's all throughout the day. It's all throughout the week. Unity in the body is more important than your individual needs and desires. Now, interestingly enough, In my life, when I've tried to serve and meet other people's needs, guess what happens? My needs are met. That is the miraculous truth of God's economy, so to speak. I'm going to finish with this Matt Lapine is a theologian in residence at Cornerstone. Um, He's been an encourager and a trainer of my son, and my son texted. A quote from Matt Lapine about some of these ideas. He says, This our culture is getting more and more individualistic. We resist restraints, don't think we know, don't think we owe anyone anything, and yet we want friends, or at least the approval of other people. What we fail to realize is that true friendship requires taking on a restraint. To adopt a friendship is to adopt a limit on my own freedom. I cannot do the things that are inconsistent with that friendship like never seeing that person. I need to make time. I need to meet their needs and encourage them in order to be a friend. But we need to take these restraints on our freedom voluntarily if we want to form and live as a body. Jesus is saying, in light of God's mercy, be a living sacrifice. Voluntarily regularly, on your own, bring your altar to Christ wherever you are. With friends, without friends. At home, not at home. In class, not in class. In the car, not in the car. You get it. And you don't have to step on the altar. You are the altar. Living sacrifices build unity in the body to bring glory to God. And the body of Christ is built with members of all nations, tribes, and tongues because that is for His glory. I really wish we could spend more time on each of the individual spots because it's bigger than than one Thursday night. Again, I encourage you to take this passage and and read through it. But I I want you to, to consider How are you doing at being a living sacrifice? Without condemnation, because in light of God's mercy that there is no condemnation, don't beat yourself over with it, but realize how are you doing and say, Lord, help me there. I want to bring you glory. I want to serve the body. I want to be obligated to you guys I want to be obligated to everybody else in the body of Christ internationally. Whether they're Jewish or Gentile background, doesn't matter. They own me. And in so doing, I'm bringing glory to God. Please pray with me. Lord, you're good. I can't say that enough. Your mercies endure forever. You're the only one worthy of worship. May our lives, may my life be a living sacrifice where I voluntarily offer up my body, my mind, my heart to you. I want to serve you by serving others in your body. Father, help me to really understand that true worship requires a living sacrifice for my life. And in so doing, it will bring and build true unity in the church and out of that you will you will be glorified to you be glory and honor forever and ever lord jesus amen